Welcome back to Create It Loud. This is Jen Loudon, and I am so happy that you are here. I make this podcast for you so that you own your creative desires. I've believed since I was a little, little kid that creativity is everything. I remember spying on one of my parents' cocktail parties once and thinking in my own sort of cheeky way that young people can. I mean, I was probably like eight or nine. Why are they all so boring? (laughs) Why aren't they doing something more fun? I have the sense that they're hiding. And that really became part of my quest in life, how to help us not hide. And that's part of the reason I make Create Out Loud, so that we can keep waking up together to what matters to us, to create, to connect, to make what we want. This week, we have a a truly extraordinary episode for you. It is New York Times bestselling author Sue Monk Kidd. Sue became a phenomena with her book, The Secret Life of Bees, two and a half years on the New York Times bestseller list, major motion picture. But she is beloved for all of her novels and memoirs and for the themes that she has explored about women's desires, creative voices, and rediscovery at midlife. I knew from previous conversations with Sue that this would be an extraordinarily meaningful conversation, at least for me, and I sure hope it is for you. Let's go. Sue, there are few authors who I think I have read everything they have published, and you are one of them. I feel like you have found a way to consistently tap into exactly what women are feeling and experiencing in a way that is astonishing to me. And here's a really broad question. How did you do that? How do we do anything? I don't know. Sometimes I look back on books I've written as I finish them and wonder, who did that? Who was Mm -hmm. that who did that? Because I can't take it in. But the fact that there are readers out there who feel they can identify with what I'm talking about, and it kind of opens their heart or mind or whatever. I mean, that's a pure gift. And the only thing I can really guess about that is that when you truly write from the source, from that deep interior place in yourself, and you truly authentically follow your thread, and you go deep enough, sometimes you really hit a wealth of universal content and material. Did you just get a shiver when she said that about source? Did it feel like such a truth ringing in your body? It did for me. And also a mystery. What is that source? And I don't want to hold it too preciously when I create, but I want to tune into it. What does that bring up for you? It makes me want to really reflect and reflect while I'm creating. I think we just want to open the hearts of other people. And if you can find a way to evoke that connection and emotion and help them identify with what you're doing, all the better. It feels to me like that thread or theme started when you wrote The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. Do you look at your body of work ever and say there's these themes that keep emerging and growing? I think you're right that there are recurring themes in my work. I think writers often go back to particular motifs that we're trying to either work something out or we're trying to, we're we're unusually fascinated with that or something about it compels us. And it probably has a lot to do with our own history and just how our soul is wired. But 
I think The Dance of the Dissident Daughter was hands down the hardest book I ever wrote. It was the scariest book I ever I wrote. I bet. Came out in 1996. And I was out way, way out on a limb and people were rapidly sawing it off. I remember that. So much came out of that. It freed me, that book did, to go on and write my fiction. And the themes in my fiction really do emerge out of my own life story in that book in many ways, because I write about gender and I write about race. I write about finding our place of belonging in the world and just kind of being true to ourselves. I remember when my editor for The Secret Life of Bees, read The Dance of the Dissident Daughter for the first time. She had just gotten my manuscript. Bees had not come out. And she read Dissident Daughter and she called me up and she said, oh, I see where all that came from. And I hadn't really made that strong connection. So she was seeing things I couldn't really see at the time. But yeah, it's a web, I guess, that we're following. Some of my listeners ask, do you still feel the same about the topic of the dance of the dissident daughter? One listener said, I just began my fifth reading of that beloved book. Wow. I don't think I've read it five times. (laughs) Good for her. No, I feel very strongly about that book. That book lives in me and is present in me. And I am very grateful for the experience that I had with that. As difficult at the time as it was, it was an extraordinary process for me to go through. And I'm just glad I could write about it. And I was so scared to write about it because I didn't know how people were going to react. And it felt very kind of alone in, in some ways and in other ways not. But response to it was extremely controversial at the time. And there was a lot of backlash. And was that, that be- taught me something. <laughs> was the backlash specifically because you had been a Christian writer writing more within the Christian faith? Oh, I'm sure that was a big part of it. I had been writing from a Christian spirituality and art of life devotionals for guideposts and so Mm -hmm. forth. It's more complicated than that, really. Very threatening for people to have their vision challenged and their ways of being in the church challenged and how feminism and religion collided and what that means in my life and in theirs. I think it was very threatening and hard for some people. And I understand that when we get our, for all of our interior furniture rearranged, we start (laughs) stumbling around. I think it's important to ask those questions. And I felt at the time that it was a question that had to be put out there, even though I didn't know anyone else who was putting it out there. But I learned that it's okay to be brave and say these things. I mean, what are they going to do? Internally, you feel like the witch burners are coming, but they didn't. And I was just fine. And I really learned a whole lot from that experience about courage and daring to speak my truth and being willing to step up and do that. It feels to me in just a short bit of conversation that part of what allows you to go to that source that you referenced earlier, that somehow you keep making these moves to quote you that take your breath away. It feels like it's one of the core questions that we have to live in, especially for people who identify as women or marginalized populations to create. We have so much fear. I feel it in myself so often. What do you think has enabled you to keep walking? Because you've had to walk through that door. I mean, it may have started with The Dance of the Distant Daughter, but you kept doing it with every single book as far as I can see. 
I once had some quotes stenciled on my wall and I took this so seriously. I mean, <laughs> I spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to decide what these quotes would be because they lined the stairway up to my study where I wrote and I could picture myself reading them as I went up, which indeed I did. One of the quotes on there was, writing is an act of courage. And that's by Cynthia Ozick. And I think it's an, so many writers have expressed variations of that, but I believe that wholeheartedly. In the end, writing is an act of courage. We aren't feeling intimidated. When I wrote the book of longings, I had some reservations like, what the heck am I doing? Ultimately, the need to follow our own truth, to expand our own soul, to be the writer we need to be, which is to be true to what is in us to say, and to tell our stories outweighs what other people are going to think and react. I mean, what does it really matter in the end? What matters is that this is our process and we have to be true to it and do the best we can with it. And we want to serve our work, but we want to serve our soul more. How do you know when you're writing that you're serving your soul? I don't always. <laughs> um, Fair enough. I mean, you know, it's a constant thing that we have to decide, are we serving our ego or are we serving our soul? Are we serving our work? Are we serving something larger than ourselves? These are questions that writers need to have somewhere in their heads as we're working, or at least on the peripheries, or to ask them from time to time. To me, just simply being willing to honestly ask those questions of ourselves keeps us on track. I mean, I can't deny that I have written things that serve my ego. I'm sure that my motivations are not always very pure, but I keep trying to come back to that question and serve the thing in me that needs to be said, the deepest thing in myself that really honestly needs to be out there. All creativity is an act of courage. It is an act of healing. It is an act of connection. It is an act of becoming more ourselves when we create with genuine courage and curiosity. Creating is an act of courage. Creating out loud is a double helping of courage. Every time you walk into that studio, pick up that notebook, paintbrush, whatever your medium, camera, etc., you are courageous and your courage changes those around you. Fact. Uh, you've said our salvation is in our imagination. That feels like related to serving our souls. Oh, the power of the imagination is extremely important. And I think culturally, not just as for writers, as storytellers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but just culturally right now, we have to be able to imagine what has never been. We can't move forward until we can imagine new things. It has to be imagined first. And this is one reason I wrote the, the Book of Longings, because I felt it was crucial that we can step out of these tight little conceptual cages where we live so often mm -hmm. and imagine bigger things that can cause us to see differently or think differently. Or, But yeah, it all starts with imagination. Again, to go back to the thought that you have that at least once in our lives, I hope many more times than once in my life, we should take our own breath away. And that when you conceived of the Book of Longings, which I love so much. I love how you wrote about her desire in that book. That to me is just a core theme in, in my own spiritual life and in my writing. How do we follow those desires? How do we pay attention to them? How do we honor them? What are we willing to do for them? What are we not willing to do for them? I can 
feel that in that book. I can feel how you followed that desire to write about something so, shall we say, heretical. <laughs> a passion of my own to write, and then I gave it to my character. She has a great passion, but, she, but they're terrific obstacles. As a writer, the thing, of course, is to identify what you deeply care about. I feel like if we can write from the inside out, you know, rather than looking for a topic out there that might be, we think, in the news or might make a lot of money, or that's an idea that's going to grab headlines. I'm not sure that's the right way to begin. I, I think that gets into serving the wrong thing. And while that may work in some ways for people in the long run, I'm not sure it will be deeply satisfying or even transforming in the way we need it to be. It's about being willing to really find that thing in ourselves that wants the deepest thing to be said. So we'll emerge. It's like a little seed. And if we kind of have contemplative approach to it, it will emerge and make itself known. And ideas are <laughs> very hard to identify which one's going to stick around sometimes, but I think we kind of know it. And when an idea comes to me that takes my breath, that kind of makes my hair on my arms stand up or the back of my neck or something about it makes, you know, you have the little flip in the stomach or the little <gasps> gasp like that, or something just triggers in you. I've described it. It's like stepping on live wires. Everything kind of vibrates. That's the effect they have on me, but then I have to let them, I have to play with them. And I really think that creativity is ultimately playing with what we love. Now that is what I'm paraphrasing Carl Jung, mm -hmm. who is a great writing teacher for me. He identified creativity in that way of playing with what we love. So when you get an idea, often we, if you just play with it, see if it will take root in your imagination. And if it will, I'll start to sprout a story, but you have to water that and nurture it and ask questions. It's usually the questions, you know, I'll ask myself things like, well, who is she and what does she want? And why is she thinking that? And what if she did this? And, and suddenly a really innate seed comes to fruition. Now, do you do those questions in a journal? Do you do them on a walk? Do you do them in the rain? Do you do them in the... <laughs> yeah, all the of you above, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do keep little journals. They're not... Oh, very disciplined, I guess. But I do keep journals as I write a book about the process itself. And I try not to devote too much time to it, but I will note little things like that. Usually they are basic questions. I have said many times, you only need to ask two questions to start a novel. Say you have the seed of an idea. You ask yourself, well, who is this character? Because it usually for me starts with a character. And what does she want? I know kind of basically who she is, even the fact, okay, she's a 14-year-old girl in the rural South whose father is not particularly a wonderful father, and she has no mother. That's all I knew about Lily in The Secret Life of Bees. Then I asked myself, what does she want? And I thought, it needs to be something significant, something driving, forceful, something that can sustain the kind of passion that you want that reader to feel for her about this. So I thought, well, I think she wants her mother. That's what she wants. She wants her mother. When I knew those two things, who kind of 
the sketchiest idea of who she is and what she wanted, that's when I'm able to grow a story. Years ago, wrote about writing The Secret Life of Bees and that you did a collage and you didn't even know what the images that you put on this collage were. They included a pink house, a trio of African-American women and a wailing wall. And I have to tell you in the writing retreats I've led for 20 years plus, I have people make collages based on how much that helped you. I always read the quote about you discovering that. Do you still make collages? Did you make one for the Book of Longing? I did. I did. It's just a real important part of my process. I've done one for every novel. I know a little bit about the idea when I start, but not much more than a beginning. And I just see what my unconscious mind is gravitating to. I keep lots of um, postcards and cards and tear things out of magazines. That's the old fashioned way. Now, of course, you can go on the internet and get all kinds of images that you would like to have, but it helps to just have a big bin or storehouse of images that have some kind of resonance for you or archetypal qualities, just a big array of them. And I like to sort through and play with them and and just put them on a big poster board. I guess you call that a storyboard. (laughs) I'm not sure. You tell me, Jennifer, what do you call that? I call it a collage. I call it you're letting your unconscious talk to you. feels very old school, doesn't it? But yeah, a collage. And so much can come out of that. All of my stories are sort of embedded in that. I remember reading something that John Irving wrote once, and I think it was in a Paris Review interview. And he said that every beginning of a novel, the whole opening is right there in the first few lines. Mm. The entire story is kind of like a seed embedded in it. And I loved that. And I thought, well, that's what a collage really is. It's just a little nugget of the whole novel. If you probe into it, you can find all kinds of things. Do you still actively study writing when you, as you did when you were uh, earlier in your fiction memoir career? To be completely honest, I suppose I don't do it with the kind of determined attention I used to. I mean, Mm -hmm. boy, was I ever into it initially. I know. I loved reading some of your years ago interviews about how you taught yourself to write. It was very instructive (laughs) for me. Well, I really feel like I was up an, an apprentice. And I dove in with that attitude, I guess. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what I was doing. I had to teach myself and But I also took classes. I went to writers' conferences. I read everything I could. That was very immersive. So I don't do that quite so much anymore. However, I really do feel like in many ways, I'm still a beginner. To be perfectly honest with you, every novel I write, I feel like I've never done it before. Do you feel this? Totally. (laughs) Like I've never written a word. I have no idea what writing is. (laughs) Yes, I know. Yeah, it's astonishing. I feel that too. And I remember being just overwhelmed every time with how am I going to do this? Do I know what I'm doing? Can I pull this off? And then just kind of stepping into it and feeling my way along as I go. But there is something to be said for keeping the beginner's mind. And it's a very, you know, Zen idea. I think it was Suzuki who said that in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. And in the expert's mind, there are few. Mm -hmm. So I try to stay as I'm working, particularly as a kind of beginner, so that it all is kind of fresh. And I'm really reaching and struggling in a way to find the best book. 
One of the things I really appreciate about you and my encounters with you, there's a, a deep sense of groundedness and for want of a better word, humbleness. Was that hard to maintain when the secret life of bees became such a huge deal? Was it hard to go back to write the mermaid's chair? There were a lot of things hard about that. Yes. The mermaid chair was difficult to write because I had felt like I had all these expectations mm-hmm. I had to live up to. I did not expect the kind of success that the secret life of bees had. That was a big shocker in my life. I mean, luckily I was in my early fifties when that happened. You know, I lived long enough not to be totally confused by the, all that. And yet at the same time, I had a hard time taking it in. Well, let me back up. Maybe I didn't have a hard time taking it in. I had a hard time owning it. I was almost embarrassed by it. That That comes up. It totally, I can't tell you how many women on the show have said some version of that. Celeste Headley had a TED talk that was super viral and she just was like, no, that's not happening. And it really took her a while to go, oh, wow, this is opening up all of these amazing opportunities for me. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I had to work my way through that because it wasn't that I felt, oh, I don't deserve this, or mm-hmm. it, it was that it was just so much that I didn't know if it would change how people responded to me. I didn't know quite how to own it and let it be okay. Sometimes I would not tell people things that were happening, even if they asked me. I had to work that out, which took a while. And my friends helped me. I think finally you realize that, well, this is your life now. You might as well accept the success of it and the good things of it too. This is crazy. And be grateful for the opportunities you're getting and the things that are happening. Like you said, it did bring some interesting pressure <laughs> to write a second novel. That was the sophomore effort is a little hard sometimes to follow a good first book or at least a successful first book. Did you try anything in particular when you were working on The Mermaid's Chair to overcome that or work with it? Or was it more just this may be hard some days and I'm just going to have to get through it? Because of course, some people never write their second book after their first success. (laughs) Well, ultimately, I had to have a little talk with myself. there (laughs) There were a few months where I was really stymied. You can get into a place in your head where the expectation you put on yourself, the perfectionism that you're striving for, it backfires. Perfectionism is never really good for writing anyway. You need to just write your book without thinking about that so much. But I was overthinking everything, every word, every sentence. Is it good enough? And then the critic gets going in your head. I got very stymied. There was probably two or three months there where I was not really able to write much of any use at all. And I had to have this conversation with myself about what was going on here. And I just decided that all of that stuff would have to stay outside my study where I wrote that it was not helping me. And what did it really matter anyway? Who was I writing this for? And it wasn't going to be the secret life of bees all over again. It was going to be its own thing. And it would be very, very different. I knew that. And I would just write the best I could and enjoy the process and be true to it. And it would be what it would be. 
I love this idea of journaling for a few minutes or meditating to clear stuff to the side, worries about your people or about money or health or whatever's there. We all have it. And just to have some kind of practice to say, okay, now you go over there, you're taken care of. And what we know neurobiologically is writing is really great because it brings it into our, basically our executive function. So we have some distance from it. We have some more sense of choice about it. We're not so tied up in it. Another practice I really like is to come in here to the office and, you know, feel my bottom in the chair, put my hand on my heart, take a few deep breaths, really realize I'm safe, I'm okay, I can handle what the day brings, and and tune in then into how I'm feeling, not my thoughts about the day or the project ahead or whatever I'm tackling, but my feelings, and just let those feelings be welcomed. A lot of us Most of us are afraid to feel our feelings. And if we can separate out the thoughts by welcoming them, by acknowledging them, by writing them down, and then give ourselves either two or three minutes to really breathe and feel the feelings and let them move through like weather, it can really open up more possibilities for our creativity and our self-trust and our energy for the day. And once I really accepted that, everything settled down. (laughs) Just right. And I let go of all that crazy, you know, thinking. You make it sound easy. I know it wasn't. And for everybody who's been there as a creator, and it could easily come after a big disappointment, right? Or a big face flop, even maybe more easily. I don't know. It's so hard to put that stuff outside the room and go back to the work some days. And I just love the feeling that that story gave me of how to do that. It reminds me of Jung. He would had a some kind of thing that he made or found that represented the critic and he would turn it to the wall when he was creating. Yeah, it's important to um, close the door to all that. And I, at the time, I would think about it as I would step into my study. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, you're out here, close the door. These little rituals help us somehow bring it home. They do. And that's one of the questions that listeners ask. What is your writing process like? Do you have any rituals that you engage in now that helps you write? Especially when you're starting. That's one of the things that a lot of writers talk to me about. I can't start. I don't know how to start. Oh, that's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) It's the hardest. It is. It's very hard for me to take comfort in that there probably isn't a writer alive who has easy time starting. It's all about putting, as Annie Lamont says, the butt in the chair. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting there. There is something to be said about the mystery of writing. I used to lecture on writing, creativity, and soul. I would talk about the mystery of writing. And then I would talk about the method of writing. The mystery, we've been touching on it when we talk mm-hmm. about things like the source and the interior life and trying to have this conversation with something inside of ourselves, et cetera, and courage. And, but ultimately, the method is just as important. And I feel like a good book comes out of a really balancing an equilibrium between these two things, method and mystery, and all that that means for us. Mm-hmm. But method has to do with sitting in the chair and learning your craft and being an apprentice and writing that sentence over and over and over as you start. I wrote until you feel like you can get into it. The first 30 pages are the hardest for me or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's a point somewhere around 30 to 40, 50 pages where those are the hardest pages I write in any book. 
especially a novel. And I write toward that. And then I feel almost like I'm changing gears Mm -hmm. and you're putting it in cruise control. It's not like it's easy cruising. It's as if you've gone up the hill and now you can kind of just write. That's how it feels in my body anyway. And I think that's because beginning is so hard. And I'll tell you this little story. When I was writing The Secret Life of Bees, I was so stymied about the whole thing. How do I start? How do I open this thing? And I would sit and stare at the computer and I would get the tension builds up in you inside. I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, I must not be a writer because I can't sit there and think up things to put on the page. I'm like, no, you sound like a writer to me. (laughs) (laughs) Always makes me sad. I know because we think it should be easy. Mm -hmm. Or look like it looks in the movies. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And it's your own thing. And if you really want to write, if that's the impulse of your heart, if that passion or that fire or that need and urge is there, then okay, you're a writer. And the way to become a writer is just to write. That's all. And I was sit there trying to think of a first sentence. So I had this brilliant idea (laughs) and I would go to this bookstore and because I couldn't think of a first sentence and I would go down the shelves and I would open random books and I would read first sentences. Sounded like a good idea. I spent about three hours doing that one day. Finally, this staff person came over and said, can I help you? (laughs) I stood there and I said to her, I do need help. (laughs) It's not with, I need, I need some real help to go home and write a first sentence in a book. And I left and I went home and I said to myself, I'm just going to write any old thing. It doesn't have to be like those sentences in the books at this bookstore. (laughs) I'm just going to write a book. And I wrote down what flashed in my head, which was there was a girl lying on a bed while bees came out of the wall and flew around the room. It was a very basic sentence. Now it would later morph into a much better sentence, but it gave me a way to start. And I just wrote another sentence and another sentence. If you can make it to the first 30 pages, <laughs> good, mm-hmm. then you're, you're probably golden. there, I'm Bianca Murray, one of the hosts of the popular podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm joined each week by my co-hosts, Carly Waters and Cece Lira, who are literary agents at PS Literary. It's our goal to help emerging writers on their journey to publication. So each week, Carly and Cece critique the query letters and opening pages that our listeners submit. Now, this is done with a view to making them as polished and compelling as possible so that they can land their dream agents. After which, I interview authors and editors at the top of their game to pick their brains about elements of craft and any nuggets of wisdom that they have to share. So, if you're a writer, or if you're interested in a behind-the-scenes look at how books are written and published, give us a listen. Expect honest insights, practical advice, zero small talk, and a few laughs along the way. I asked you two questions at one time, which is bad interviewing everybody. Sorry about that. Do you have any writing rituals? Well, you, you know, I probably skipped right over that. 
I suppose I do. They evolve over time. I come into my study in the mornings. I write till lunch, but I usually start with tea nowadays. It's a much easier process for me nowadays. Used to be a little more elaborate, but I'll just bring my tea upstairs. I do have a moment where I have maybe five or 10 minutes where I just sit quietly with a journal and I let my, I try to clear, just kind of clear out. I think this sounds kind of rarefied, <laughs> but I, I kind of clear out my soul. In other words, I'm just letting things float up that need to be moved to the side so I can get to the, my story again. And there are things that are on your mind that distract you. So sometimes a little clearing meditation for about five or 10 minutes. And then I just sit and I work my heart out. You know, I just work. When I'm actually writing a book, working on one, it's typically many hours a day. I've had to stop some of that long hours. I mean, when I wrote The Mermaid Chair, particularly The Invention of Wings, and I suppose even The Book of Longings, I was writing sometimes eight, eight, nine hours a day. Wow. Which is a little too much. You know, I'm not sure you're being really productive after about four or five hours. I would rewrite and I would rewrite as I go along, but I have now reformed myself a little <laughs> bit and I'm doing better about giving myself time to not be as driven about it. That's good. I'm glad for you. <laughs> So one of the questions I also got from listeners is that they are fascinated by how you do your research. Uh, Your novels are based on history. Some of your novels are some of the best I've ever read. And as someone who's trying to write a historical novel, I get lost in the amount of research I need to do to make it authentic. I heard Sue say once that she set a limit for the time that she would do the research. But my question is, did she only do research for a period of time, like six months, and then begin to write? How do you stay focused and not go down the rabbit hole that is information that does not serve the book? Oh, I'm not (laughs) sure I'm the one to ask. Um, When I was doing the Book of Longings research, that was the most intensive research I've ever had to do because I had so much to learn there and there is so much I needed to learn. And I did get lost in the research. On at least two occasions, my daughter had to do an intervention. (laughs) So what did that look like? Well, it looked like this. I was researching the aqueducts in Galilee in the first century, the Roman aqueduct. Okay, that should take about five minutes. The second day, I was still researching them. My daughter came in and said, are you still reading and researching the Roman aqueducts? And I said, yes. And she said, mother, this must stop. You know, you're in trouble when they use the mother word, (laughs) mother. And she was correct. I think research can be one thing is it could be so fascinating that you get lost in it and you just love it. And it leads you from one thing to the other. I mean, really, I don't think Roman aqueducts were that fascinating. It could be an avoidance issue, you know? I mean, I had pictures of them and everything. We have to pull back sometimes and um, you need somebody to do an intervention sometimes. But mostly, I want my historical novel to be so real, so to feel so real for the reader that when she or he steps into that 
book. You feel like you're in a real world. This is really happening. And it comes down to details, tidbits about a Roman aqueduct sometimes. I create notebooks. So I'll have a notebook. I'll have like four or five big, huge ring notebooks where I collect articles, notes, pictures, all kinds of things, timelines, and just keep referring to them. So I did that for a long time before I even started writing, but it continues. But I love the research. You just have to be vigilant not to um, let it become a way to avoid the actual writing or something or just keep it in perspective. It's so true. You have to keep checking in with yourself. Another listener said, while the heart waits is currently my roadmap on my midlife journey, I'd love to ask Sue what she would say now to her younger self. Off the top of my head, I think I would say to my younger self not to be so angst ridden about it all, that it's all going to work out, that all will be well, and that there is, as I wrote in the Book of Longings, a place inside of us where we are inviolate that really is in us. And then we can find our way there. We can make portals into this place. And that is a safe harbor for us within ourselves. And, we're, and we'll be okay. I mean, at the time when I was younger, I often felt like things were so huge and there wasn't as much perspective there. Now with getting older and having a little more perspective and wisdom, I can see that I didn't need to be that anxious about it or that confused conflicted that there was in me a way a resilience and an ability to be to be in it and be okay when those things happened your self-trust just grows so much through that experience do you have a daily spiritual practice these days you know, uh, recently I was asked to give a lecture, my spiritual and theological life in a way to reflect on it over the last 20 years. That's not can a small ma- order. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, I have writer's block just thinking about that. I thought when they proposed that idea to me, my first thought was, oh, wow, that's a lot. I don't even know where to start. But I said, uh, but I decided to take it on. I said I would do it because I was curious. It took me quite a while to really reflect and think about this, but I learned a lot about myself as I reflected on that, about my path and kind of how I evolved. I came to understand that, well, I think I already understood this, but I came to articulate it for myself, that the spiritual path is largely about an expansion of our consciousness and an expansion of the heart and of the soul of just, it's like growing growing larger somehow and being able to be more permeable and to take in more of who we are becoming that largeness inside. And I saw the course of my life evolving through my roots, you know, in a very traditional Protestant Christian background to then a more contemplative spirituality, then branching out of Christianity into more ecumenical ways, reading Buddhism, reading many other paths. I saw myself incorporating feminism into my spiritual life, um, the work of C.G. Jung, I could see this big arc of how I was 
finding my way by um, just trying to follow my own little evolution through life. Now, this place where I am now, it feels like because I'm in I'm in my 70s now, it feels like I am trying to integrate all of this. There's no great urgency in me now to seek and explore as much as I used to. It's more about being where I am, really being in my life integrating all these different parts of my life and all of my experiences, living where I am in a simple kind of simplicity of being. And if I had to say anything about what matters to me now, it is just about the simplicity of being, being in my ordinary world and knowing the goodness of that and the importance of that, kind of paying attention and finding compassion in my everyday life. That's kind of my religion. Skipped over the part about creativity, but I do think that is a an epoch in our evolution spiritually is when we understand that we are helping to co-create this world. That that is part of what we're here to do, you know, is to put our voice and our little creative fingerprint on this world. That is a spiritual act, I think. And for me to write has always been to pray. It's like, I get up, I feel pretty content. I'm just trying to be in each moment. That's about it. How do you transition between projects? Do you feel bereft when a project is finished? Do you show up and write every day, even when you're not working on a project? Or do you kind of feel like, yay, I get to have some time when I'm not (laughs) writing? That has changed over time with me. I have always taken pretty substantial breaks between projects. I'm not one of those miraculous writers who can turn out a book a year or something like that. I guess it takes me from the inception of the idea to the finishing a manuscript. It's usually around three years. And then after that, I um, often take a year to just be and I read and I try to just be in the world and and to let the land be fallow so that it can become fertile again kind of idea, Mm -hmm. to use a farmer metaphor. (laughs) It really is true in the creative life. I think you need some fallow time. I usually wait and a seed of an idea comes during that time. So I always have some time between, do I feel bereft or sad when a book is over? Often. Yeah. I miss the characters. I was so almost depressed after The Secret Life of Bees was finished because I missed the characters so much. I loved hanging out with them. It had been three and a half years I'd been with them and in the pink house with them all. And that was when I went out and bought a dog named Lily, which was the name of my character, which was comforting. It's my daughter's name. Well, I love that name. You know, I picked it because it actually in Hebrew means Susan or Sue. It's a kind of, I felt a little bit of a connection to it, I guess, because of that. I miss my characters sometimes, Mm -hmm. but then I feel like they're all in me and they, you know, are living somewhere in the reader's minds or hearts. They're in the world somewhere. They are. They are so in my mind and my heart. So this is a question I'd love to end on. What do you want to learn next? What a question. I mean, I suppose I want to learn how to write a book without any anxiety. (laughs) Would you teach me that? Sure. I'll be right over. (laughs) That's impossible, maybe, but um, I would. That's interesting, though, given everything you've just been saying. Like, is that the next evolution to that kind of deep trust (laughs) in your imagination and your. I don't know. I may be talking facetiously here. I don't know. 
I was thinking just the amount of tension and energy that does mm-hmm. go into writing a book or mm-hmm. pulling off an idea. It's quite an endeavor mm-hmm. and requires a lot of wonderful hard work. I guess I have a fantasy about being able to breeze through it without any effort. <laughs> That's probably more of a magic wand thing than a real evolution. But oh, I don't know. To be to speak a little more seriously, maybe the next thing at my age is um, to really know what matters every day. I mean, life is precious to me now, and it grows more precious as I get older because I understand that it's limited, and I can feel that more intently now. Probably for me, um, it has to do with wringing out those things that matter the most to me and knowing that and really attending that. I think about my legacy now. I think about what matters having to be my family, my friends, my work, and really distilling my life down to those things and not these peripheral things or tributaries that take the energy away from what Mm -hmm. really is important for me to accomplish and do or be now. There's a line in The Invention of Wings where my character, Handful, says about Sarah, she says, she has distilled into a good, strong broth. Maybe that's what I want. Sue, thank you. It was just everything I knew it would be. I really needed this conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. I love talking to you, Jennifer. Wow. Do you just feel like you just were marinated in the deep creative truth? Me too. There's so many takeaways from me for this episode. I'm in a real time of why bother. And if you all don't know, that was the title of my last book. And the idea behind that book is that why bother is an inevitable question that we ask. And it's one that we need to ask, whether it's about our creative work or our work work or our relationships or whatever. And there's never a bad answer, except if we don't face into what we're feeling And after writing Why Bother, which was really a long time in the making, I haven't had anything that's calling to me, and the book's been out for a while now. And I loved how Sue talked about fallow times and how she seemed to relax into them, but I love what she said about soul and source. And so that's where I'm going to be going, not to force a book. I don't have to write another book. I've written nine, for Lord's sakes. So what's your takeaway? I really, really, really hope you'll share this episode with as many people as you can. It feels so important and so beautiful. And if you could take the time to review the podcast, you can go to jenniferloudon.com podcast. You'll see it right there at the top of the website. And then just scroll down on that page and there's a lovely little short video exactly how to review the podcast on Apple. And it just takes a couple steps. But if you don't know how to do it, that'll make it clear. My wonderful producer, Jeff, made that for you. Next week, it's you and me, baby. We're sitting down for a solo episode, and it's all about how to finish things. Yeah, that whole finishing thing. Oh, it can be so freaky, can't it? We're so compelling that we want to finish things too soon. There's so many things about finishing. I got things to say. I'll be back next week with those things, (laughs) and hopefully they will be useful for you. And in the meantime, take all this goodness from Sue, bring it deep into your heart, and create out loud. Thank you for being here. See you next week.